Hello and welcome to another episode of the Book Baby Spotlight Podcast, your home for interviews with authors, illustrators, editors, and other industry insiders from the world of self-publishing. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Sam. And we have two great interviews coming your way. Janine Cook, owner of Harriet's Bookshop in Philadelphia and Ida's Bookshop in Collingswood, New Jersey. And she is one of Philly Mag's 100 most influential Philadelphians. After that, we'll go to Dr. DeWitt Williams, book baby author and longtime educator. Sam, I listened to your interview with Janine before we jumped on. She is impressive, wise, and insightful. <laughs> yeah, Janine is definitely buzzing with energy. She has so many ideas. I just love how she's willing to try anything to, to reach those goals. Her bookstore is located in the Fishtown, Philadelphia. Is that near you? It is. It's about a 10-minute walk from my house, and uh, Janine will talk about this, but it's a really unique space aesthetically, uh, you know, where instead of crowded shelves and cramped quarters, things are spaced out, and the individual author is really highlighted, making it seem more like an art gallery. Uh, they also bring in musicians to play while you shop and host a lot of events for different authors. Wow. Music? books and turn into an art gallery. Okay, say less. That's a clock out and you can put that on my PTO, Sam. <laughs> I'm aware that their spiel is having a sizable collection of literature by Black authors and Black women in particular. The name Harriet's is a nod to abolitionist Harriet Tubman, Ida's Bookshop for Ida B. Wells, primary civil rights activist and founder of the NAACP. I read at one point that Janine's goal was to open a bookstore in each state and name it after a different historical Black female icon. Yeah, that's probably a few years down the line, but it makes sense. And she's already 4% of the way there. I want to get some more of your thoughts, but I think maybe we should save it for after. All right, let's do it then. All right. Our next guest is Janine Cook. Janine is the owner of two local bookstores, Harriet's Bookshop in the Fishtown neighborhood of Philly and Ida's Bookshop in Collingswood, New Jersey. She's a bibliophile, an activist, a writer, a teacher, and sometimes even a delivery person on horseback through our neighborhood. Janine, thanks so much for joining the podcast. I'm cracking up at that. Yeah, because people are like, what? A delivery person on horseback? <laughs> When we have to social distance, but we still need to get books out to folks, we came up with as many creative ideas as I could find to get the job done. And one of them was, well, if I'm on top of a horse, I'm, I am six feet away from folk. That was great. Uh, right before we started recording, I mentioned that we had initially scheduled this interview for March of 2020. Uh, it was the week that all hell broke loose. Uh, so I hold no grudge about missing that appointment. No problem at all. Uh, I'm glad we're finally able to reconnect. Uh, I, I know at that point you were just launching your first bookstore and it, it seems like it's been a wild ride since then, huh? Oh, absolutely. It's been, um, we've, we've had many a roller coaster ride to work through, right? Like so many things have been come, come our way, whether that's the pandemic that started six weeks after we opened, the uprisings, which happened, you know, as you know, in like around May, June 2020, <clears throat> there's been, you know, a weather catastrophe. I mean, this has been a lot of upheaval yeah yeah so well let's go way back start at the beginning where'd your love for books begin so that's a funny question and i think depending on the day that i get the question it's a different answer um i think there are a lot of things that culminate into our love for books and stories more specifically i come from a lineage of people who were book people storytellers teachers preachers what we call griots in our in our culture whether that's you know my mother who was a former librarian or my father who was an electrician but an avid reader and also a, a, a preacher and a singer you know my my grandmother who still continues to be a storyteller to this day and also I, I believe that she uses story as medicine in her in her own way and so we it's just a part of my lineage i believe that i'm picking up where you know my mother and father left off in some ways and then in other ways i would say that um you know i have i come from a lineage of literary women like tony morrison like audrey lord like bell hooks like Alice Walker, who, though may have never met me, laid quite the blueprint for me. Uh, and so a lot of what we, what we are doing is a continuation of the work that they were doing. Uh, and I understand that you're a self-published author as well? My personal book is self-published, Conversations with Harriet, which came right before we opened the bookshop. So 
Conversations with Harriet was a compilation of short stories, poetry, um, meanderings, conversations that I've been having with Harriet over the course of some years. And then I've also just recently self-published a children's book called Harriet's Bookshop, which tells the journey of the bookshop. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Can people pick that up right in the bookshop now? Yeah. Yeah. You can get that at the bookshop. It's only available at the bookshop for now. Gotcha. Well, we can talk later about how we can get that uh, sold through Book Baby as well. Oh, we love that. that <laughs> so uh, can you tell me a little bit about your mission and, and what sets Ida's and Harriet's apart? Yeah, so Harriet's Bookshop and Ida's Bookshop, our mission celebrates women authors, women artists, and women activists. And right now, to hear somebody talk about activists is not an uncommon thing. But in 2020, before we, you know, right when we were opening, that was something that people considered a little strange, maybe even radical, or didn't make sense. I know at least one of my um, mentors said that it didn't, that the mission didn't really make sense. Like, why would you be so niche? Why are you being so specific? How are you going to get men to shop there? <laughs> And so a lot of things that there are often things that people don't understand about other people's communities that you understand about your own community. And that this process has taught me to to lean not onto other people's understanding because they don't they just don't know. Right. Like they're just not a part of that world. And I, I'd never I'd never experienced anything like what the bookshops are that we offer, which is that they meet at these interesting intersections. They're not just bookshops because they're also monuments and they're not just monuments because they're also art galleries in many ways. You know, the display, the way that the, the, the shops are designed are, I would say, like highly artistic. We work with and collaborate with lots of local artists to bring new versions of the bookshop to life every few months. Um, and right now what we've been doing is taking you inside of a book when you come inside of the bookshops. And so when you're at the at Harriet's, you're inside of the 1619 project by Nicole Hannah Jones and everything looks like an illustration, including the furniture and the floors and the walls. Um, and wow. when you come to Ida's, you're inside of the color purple by Alice Walker and, and same, same deal. They don't look like the at, at, at Ida's. It's not an illustration. It's almost like a, a, a living mural. It's very interesting. Yeah, I think you can definitely tell just going into your shop what a, a spotlight you're putting on design and the way the whole thing seems like an art gallery rather than, you know, a crammed bookstore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like it's, it's speaking at intersections. And what I what, you know, when people ask me about it, I'm just like, you know, a lot of what we've done comes out of curiosity. So like, you know, like I said, I was wondering, like, why why aren't there more bookshops like, you know, that pay homage to the writers that pay homage to the foremothers that pay homage like to women in general right like why why do we live in a country that there's still not a single federal holiday name for a woman or you know why i mean these are just questions why why are bookshops why do they all look the same like why why don't they you know why aren't they more creative about the design um, or the layout or, you know, why why does it have to be cramped? What would happen if it was minimalist? And so just, you know, in exploring those questions, these are the ways in which we've come to answers. You know, why aren't why don't we have musicians and harpists and, and violinists and singers? And, you know, I've had a flutist. Uh, I've had, you know, every we even have a vibraphonist. You know, like, why don't we have musicians playing at bookshops? It makes total sense to me that you'd like to have a, a beautiful musical experience while you're browsing. And especially during the pandemic, when I knew that artists weren't getting the work that they needed to survive. Yeah. It was like, well, how could we collaborate in such a way where we could both sustain ourselves? And so that's how we started that, where musicians would come and play outside because we would take all of our furniture outside and we build the bookshop outside. And we did that for like eight months. And again, because of the question of like, well, why don't we do, do this this way? Yeah. And if it doesn't work, then you try the next thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I really love you know everything that you've introduced into Fishtown. It's such a great shop. Uh, and just walking by any day, <laughs> have no idea, uh, you know, what type of music you might hear. And, yeah, you have to exactly. go and stop and, and you gotta check it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean you're having a compiled uh I, I mean I just think that, you know, we there's still so much exploration that we get to do when it comes to books and that we don't get to let anyone tell us, you know, that 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 this is how it has to be done because it doesn't necessarily 
have to be done that way, right? Like we just did a pop-up, we built a bookshop inside of a theater. And it was just like, well, you know, people were like, well, why would you do a bookshop inside a theater? But I'm like, well, the theater and the bookshops should be working together more, right? You have these two Mm -hmm. cultural organizations that are constantly trying to keep themselves alive, keep themselves, you know, afloat. And most of the, the productions are based on books, you know, so it's like these things. And, you know, you have if a person usually likes theater, they usually like literature like this. These things are not it's not uncommon. It doesn't make sense why they don't work together more, in my opinion. And so some of it I've been like, well, maybe we could just create some models that someday will help other bookshops consider other ways that they can stay around because what we know is that this this bookshop thing happens in in um almost like a pendulum that swings and sometimes we have lots of bookstores and bookstores are thriving and then we have the the downfall of bookstores where everything's closing and what i'm trying to avoid and to help other bookshops avoid is that downfall yeah it seems like you're also really trying to bring in the different areas of the community and embrace the position that an independent bookstore tends to get either way. Uh, that's where like-minded people tend to show up. Uh, so I'm yeah. curious how you approach that in your position uh, as a community leader. Yeah, I think that the bookshop gives us a, almost like a neutral ground, which we need in the current society so that folks can have dialogue, right? And because naturally, once you, at least for me, um, once I read, I have questions. Once I, once mm-hmm. I read something, I have, I have ideas, I have thoughts. And what better place to have a dialogue about those questions and those thoughts and let it be in a safe space where it's not like gonna, you know, result in like name calling or, you know, like, you know, someone being harmed. It's like, no, this is the point of this space. This, this space is designed for difficult conversations. It's designed for us to, to think about what, the, what it is that we want as a society and how we want to enact it, you know? And mm-hmm. there's not enough spaces like that, right? Like for this to be a democracy or a so-called democracy, like we, why aren't there more spaces where we discuss the way that we want the society to operate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and of course, you were out in the streets uh, during the BLM protests in 2020, handing out copies of books, which really made for a striking image of protest. What it seems like like uh, you're showing is how to then actualize the literature that you're picking up. And uh, I'm curious how you think about that. You know, what role does literature play in the ongoing struggle for Black lives? Yeah, I mean, I think that literature has all, like I said before, storytelling has always sat at the at the center of our societies. This is not new, right? When folks were writing messages and carving them into into stone when they were, you know, putting it on papyrus, like what were they doing? They were telling stories um, because this is this is the human way, right? The human the human way is to to share information and to and to share experiences, whether that's to keep you alive, like, hey, don't go over there because that's where, you know, the it's unsafe over there. Or whether it's to say, like, you know, just to give thanks for life. Um, but that medium has always been a part of our experience. Um, and so I think that, you know, when you're in a situation where you're experiencing atrocity, when you're experiencing some of the worst of what the society has to offer, you know, it's natural for you to go to books because these these stories, um, this information allows you to time travel, it allows you to speak to people from the past, it allows you to access information from almost anywhere in the world um, and and to adapt it to your current circumstance. So when we were saying, let's, you know, we're going to take it, we're going to take the books outside to give to folks, it was because in my imagination, again, I'm always like, I have a lot of curiosity. So I was just like, I mean, I wonder what would happen if instead of going out with signs, we went out with books. And I said, and I really thought, because for me, you know, I want a movement to be sustainable, right? It, it, it doesn't make sense for, for, up, for folks to be up in arms for a week or two and then return back to the same circumstances um, by which they were, were, they were rebelling. And we saw that, we see that happen over and over and over again. And so that's why I said, well, if you had a book as opposed to just a sign, perhaps you sit with that information and it changes you forever. You can't help you can't help but be affected by what you read. We just can't help it. Um, and so 
And I think, you know, I'm not saying that we single-handedly did that, of course, but I think that we, we did our best to play our part in, in how to have a deeper dialogue about the issues. And, you know, a lot of, like I said, during that time, it's just like, you know, the blueprint has been laid for a lot of things that we are experiencing right now. It's just a matter of returning to those blueprints and using that information that's been provided for us. Uh, so I guess looking forward now, uh, what's your outlook business-wise for 2023? Uh, it's been a difficult few years. Uh, you mentioned uh, independent bookstores closing in Philly. Uh, even Barnes & Noble had to downsize their Center City location. Uh, so what do you see as next? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that you mentioned Barnes & Noble because, you know, one of the articles I recently read is that they, they're going to take on the same model as the independent bookshop, where they're going to start being small and they're going to start being um, being more niche. And we can't, you know, I can't help but think that they, I mean, I've literally had folks from Barnes & Noble come in and say, oh, we're coming in to study how you're doing this. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's just a part of how how um, you know, that's how part of how business works and it's an interesting aspect of our current society where um, major corporations will take what they see smaller independent folk doing and then benefit and stuff like that from it. Um and that's like in every industry, that's the music industry, we see it in the the clothing industry, fashion, you know, it's like but you know, that's when it comes down to the humans and the and the humans making a decision about who they're going to support and why and 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 how they're going to sustain certain certain institutions. But in terms of what's going to happen with us, you know, Harriet's my you know, our our hope every month is that we can make it another month. <laughs> um, and, and that's just the truth of the matter. When you're small and independent, you just don't know. You know, I think we might have sold one book today so far, you know, so that does happen. And it's important that people know that, that, you know, in the height of the moment, it's cool to support folks. But, you know, keep that same energy um, if you are able. And then so for us, we've just again, I'm just being as creative as possible, right? We we opened Ida's over in South Jersey, which gives us a sister store and gives us an opportunity to be a part of a second community um, and to build bridges between South, South Jersey and Philly. Um, also to learn the laws uh, of these two different states and, and to, you know, say, hey, well, over here, this is how they do it in South Jersey. Maybe, maybe Fishtown needs to take a look at that and, and adapt. Right. Why doesn't Fishtown have a, a book festival like Collingswood does, you know, like asking those questions. I visited Ida's at Collingswood's last book. festival. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it was just like, you know, like, I don't, you know, for me. And then we had like, you know, the drummers were there and we had um, <laughs> it was just beautiful. It was beautiful. It's like it was full of spirit. And so, you know, just being a part of those two worlds has been helpful. Um, you know, we're, we built that pop up inside of a theater. So that's us like looking at new models of like, well, what does it look like if we're starting to like build these, these pop-ups that are mobile and small and exist within other spaces. So we, we have less overhead. Then, you know, we're also going to be doing a pop-up over in Paris um, dedicated to Josephine Baker. And so I've been applying for grants and funding and support to make that happen because there's a conversation to be had about how to be a global citizen and how to engage globally. Like, you know, like many of the corporations that are doing really well, they're doing so because of that. Right. Because they're not they're not, you know, just sitting in one corner. They exist everywhere. And so what is what happens if we start to think of the world as our home and, and start to live that way with our current inventions we have that possibility so let's try it and see what happens and so those are kind of some of the things that are on the horizon we also have a sisterhood sitting trolley tour which takes you from harriet's to five other black women-owned businesses in the city we know that based on the data like we did this last year and three of those businesses from last year no longer exist um in philadelphia and so to me, that's alarming. And maybe it's not alarming to other people because it's not in their community or it doesn't affect them directly or they just don't know about it. But I do know about it and it does affect me directly. And those are my friends. And to, to watch three of three out of five close down in one year is is 
is an is an emergency. You know, if I if one if you know if one of your children brought home a, a test and it was they got three out of the five answers wrong, you'd say, okay, we need to really sit down and make some adjustments to make sure you understand how to do this work better. And so that's the same thing that I'm the opportunity that I think we're presenting to the city is like, you know, we that we're failing at this and there's an opportunity here to do this better and so you can take that trolley tour and you can support black women-owned businesses especially during the hard months which february is because it's cold and people aren't necessarily like you know wanting to browse the way they might in in the spring and, and so and we're just trying new things and, and is everything working perfectly no but i'm i'm we're open to possibility. And I think that's what entrepreneurship really comes down to. Absolutely. So uh, speaking of entrepreneurs, uh, most of our authors consider themselves entrepreneurs as they are taking the reins themselves as a self-publisher to sell the book. So they have less muscle behind their PR efforts than say Will Smith, who I know you hosted an event for when his <laughs> memoir came out. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious if an author who was not Will Smith uh, were to approach you in the bookstore and ask about having an event there, what's the information that you would want to know before agreeing? You know, are there certain red or green flags that you're looking for? Yeah. I mean, for us, it's like, you know, it's, and I tell folks this all the time, especially our indie authors, is like, you know, it's one thing for you to hand me over a case of books and I just put it on the shelf. That's not going to do anything. You know, your book is your book and you your energy has to be behind it. Um, the other thing that's really important is for folks to think really specifically about their book. Like every book doesn't need to the same type of book launch. Like it should it should be catered to the book and the person that wrote it. Um, in such a way where it's like, wow, this is a singular experience and I want to have it, you know, versus like, oh, yeah, come, I'll do a reading, get the book. Da, da, da. It's like, you know, that doesn't necessarily engage new audiences. But if your book is about, you know, let me try to think of an example of what. Oh, yeah, this is an interesting one. I had a friend who wrote a book about um, Wall Street, about her time on Wall Street and how many times she would have to take people to to the strip club because that was just a part of the culture of wall street and as a woman what that was like for her etc so she she held her book launch at a strip club and i'm not saying everybody needs to hold their book launch at a strip club what i'm saying is we get to be more creative about what it is that we are like how we're engaging with the audience how we're bringing our our book to the to the people um because everyone doesn't have to look the same like we've done some out on the corner where we've had we've had readings out on the corner we've had some indie bookshop day indie author days where it's like you know we'll invite a, a lot of indie authors to come in and then you all engage with each other sell your books to whom, whoever comes in and you know you keep the profit donate a, a portion to the bookshop you know and so we can be creative about how we do these things so that it's not because we get so many people calling us so it's just difficult to support everyone and, and so now, now we have to actually just get creative about how to do it. Are you looking at the publisher imprint name? Does that mean anything to you in particular? Like a seal of quality? Is it easier to deal with? Irrelevant? Mm, no, I'm not. That's not my. That's not my my thing. I'm looking at what 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 the story is about. So you, you're just ordering from a wholesaler distributor anyway. So it doesn't really matter. No, I mean I'm. I have I have a book submission form on our website, so mm. folks can push you know, they can send us any book and I'm looking at, you know, what they tell me their book is about. And if it's something that we find interesting or if it fits a theme that we're working with, then, then yeah, this book makes sense for us. And if you're local, that's even better because, you know, folks tend to be connected to folks that are from where they're from. And so that that's kind of what I'm thinking about, you know? Yeah. I was just curious cause I, I know a lot of, uh, people in the industry kind of look at self-publishing as the lowest form, kind of the, the lonely stepbrother we want to talk about and kind of look down on it that way. It's like I, I actually have lived that walk of like, what does it feel like to do it on your own? And I actually, mm -hmm. in some ways, like, you know, with the children's book, like I, I was trying to pitch it and I, you know, when some, I get enough no's, I'm like, you know what? I'm so, I, I don't want to hear another no. I'm just going to handle this myself. And that's the same thing with the bookshop, right? It was just like, I guess I was so tired of hearing 
no or well we don't understand or well could you explain it or i don't know you know like all of that i don't want to hear that anymore because you know at some point it's like if you have something a burning desire within yourself you have to just get it out <laughs> i just i have to just try and i, I think that that will resonate with other self uh, self self-published authors it's just like i got this in me i gotta get it out of me i'm not sure you know i I'm, they may or may not have tried the more traditional route and just not made it but you know there are options out there and you know there are bookshops like ours that do believe in the the power of the independent author so it all, all works together in that sense um, so I'm curious uh, if, if we kind of think of bookselling as a really long supply chain from the thoughts in the writer's <laughs> head to the paper, to the agent, to the publisher, to the printer, et cetera, mm -hmm. uh, down to you, to the reader. Uh, so from where you stand in that supply chain, you know, what do you see as the most difficult part of bookselling? Oh, my gosh. So many pieces that are so difficult. I think that probably the, right now what's really difficult is that there are are fewer and fewer publishing companies and which means that you know there's less and less diversity within the field um and when there's not a lot of diversity and there's not that means that there's not a lot of competition there's not a lot of creativity like it it, it, it the, these how these big houses shape what it is that we have access to i also think another really difficult thing is the role that organizations or institutions like amazon play um, and publishers too, right? Like this morning I was going, like this woman wrote me and she wanted me to attend this event. And I'm like, ma'am, you know, the amount of work that it takes for me to attend an event and sell three copies of a book is just like, you know, I, I can't do that. It's bad for, it's bad for me physically and emotionally and it's bad for our business because it, it's costing me money at this point to attend the event. And she said, um, oh, well, I'll just buy the books directly from the publisher then. And I said, you know, I want to invite you to the possibility that one, there is some, there's some moral and ethical issues with that, whether y'all do it or not, whether the publishers do it or not, there's some issues there because if you decide you're going to start undercutting the bookshops, then that's that eventually means that we won't exist anymore. And just because I can't come, Janine can't come sell three books at your event. There might be another bookshop that would love to. And it does do a great deal of support for us, you know, to keep us in the loop and not just undercut us. And that's the same thing with folks like Amazon who are doing the same thing, which is like, you know, you know, pricing things so low that you can't possibly compete with them mm. and therefore you know making it hard for us to exist um and that's intentional you know and that and that and that sucks and so i think that there's a lot of places where it gets backed up you know there are a lot of gatekeepers when you talk about the supply chain and then there's also you know on in my side job because yes i have a side job because i have to sustain my life um people are like how the heck are you doing it and i'm like i don't know i'm tired but <laughs> you know in my side work i'm doing work around policy especially as it relates to manufacturing and the data the data speaks very loudly that you know folks there's you know black people if you want to call them black or asiatic or whatever you refer to bipoc people of color all of these terms whatever you say it that group does not have a stake in man in, in manufacturing right now less than one percent less than one percent of manufacturing is done by people that come out of that community which means that you know the bookseller is you know a middleman right it's a middle person as opposed to being somebody who's actually like hands in the dirt like has the ability to to create the product that they serve they sell and so you know one time I, I tweeted like you know in my wildest imagination we can go from bud to book where we plant the seed and we use the hemp to create the paper and we learn how to make do that process and then we understand how to do it in such a way that it's sustainable for the earth and then we also are able to create our own ink and we're able to do our own binding and we're able to do our own you know um mass production and printing and we're able to then sell that book um and that to me it feels like a more sustainable model and that's partially why we haven't but put the children's book anywhere but at harriet's because it's like listen we we need ways where we can just have you know at least something of our own here where that gets attracts people to this brick and mortar space 
Um, now, am I there yet? Not at all. But I do see a, a world where that could happen and, or at least where a generation can make that happen. Um, the other thing we know that happens pretty often, or at least in my community, is that the businesses aren't sustaining long enough to even be passed down from generation to generation. And that's crazy. It's terrible, you know, whereas in other countries, especially France, where I was last year, like there are policies in place to support, um, you know, independence with being able to sustain themselves and be passed down from generation to generation. And so we get to think about the way in which policy um, supports us or undercuts us and then create the policy that does what we need it to do. Uh, so you mentioned Amazon. Uh, and they, of course, dominate in the retail online space. Uh, but there is a challenger coming, uh, bookshop.org, uh, which for our listeners is not to be confused uh, with the Book Baby Bookshop. Uh, but the bookshop.org gives you the ability to compete with them digitally. Uh, can you explain what uh, your relationship is with them and how that works? Yeah, so Bookshop um, gives us, a, like you just said, it gives us an opportunity to have an outlet for um, book sales online, uh, and they serve as like a third-party support to the independent bookstores across the world, and, you know, they give you, a, you build your own storefront with them, et cetera. I mean, and I, and I love the folks at Bookshop, shouts to Sarah, who's my, the person that I work with directly. At the same time, I've given Bookshop a lot of critical feedback as well, right? Like, mm. you know, you're, you know, they, they, because this is a conversation and I, I would think that folks are trying to do what's best and sometimes they miss opportunities to do what's best for everybody because you're thinking um, almost from a very singular focus. And I, what I mean by that is like, so Bookshop, when you give, when you sign somebody up now they have your customers contact information and they reach out to your customers directly without your permission or support and it's just like hmm now that's not necessarily how that should work should it like bookshop mm -hmm. is supposed to be in the background at least from my perspective so what is it why would you be advertising to my customers without my permission you know so that's just one small example of, of the critical feedback that i've given to bookshop um there's also you know i also question like hey well, what would happen in a world where there is a um, blackbookshop.org or, a, you know, asianbookshop.org? Like what happens if we start to like really um, be more specific and open more of those so that bookshop has competition as well? Because right now they're they're dominating the space where they exist. Um, but not Amazon space. <laughs> Right. You know what I mean? So it's like they're, they're, they're also so it's like, how do we support you with making sure you don't turn into your competitor by accident? Um, and so that, there's some things there that we get to, you know, just be, be questioning and just be in conversation about, um, have you found them open to that or yeah, is it more, yeah, trying I mean, to build I, their own? I've no, nobody shut me down. Nobody, you know, kicked me off the platform or whatever. And like, if they did so, you know, so what, you know, cause then that would really motivate me to be competition. So don't, you know, <laughs> you could do, I mean, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm already very busy. So I'm just like, but I, I can throw these ideas out because it's like the ideas are flowing and there are opportunities here within this space. Um, like bookshop could use some competition and, you know, you could use some, some ways in which you could, make sure that you're not undercutting your bookshops by accident. So like that lady saying she's going to call the publisher directly. This has happened to me a few times already now where I'm like, publishers are not supposed to be selling the customers directly. You know, like when did we start that? And now what if publishers start opening their own bookstores? Then what? You know, like now you really undercut. Now you really don't have a bookstores really have no books. Independent bookstores have no place. And so you got to just be careful and watch how things are unfolding. Like there's a, why, why are they taking, why did, you know, why did they take these, these folks before Congress? Right. Because they were doing, it's, it looks a little funny. It's a little, you know, you, you dominating in the, the, the space and monopoly is not supposed to be happening here. We want to make sure that there is an opportunity within the United States for, for multiple types of businesses to thrive. And, you know, and the truth be told, like if Amazon decided to get, and I've said this before, if they decided to step out of the book world for five years and just let the, let the independents have it, like they have so much money, so much resource, so many products, it would not affect their bottom line in a major way, but it would do miraculous amounts of support to the independent. 
it would it would change the independent totally. And so that's is and so there are ways in which you know these organ these institutions claim to want to be in support of community, um, but then do the bare minimum, right? Like it's like that smile program or whatever. Like they just you know it's like you're not come on y'all. Like if you really want to make a a strong impact, if you really want to send a bold message, if you really want to make sure that independents have a have have a ability to stick around, you could literally just say we're gonna take we're gonna take a five year off or we're gonna take one year off. Even one year, mm -hmm. one year would, would do so much for the independent. Well, from your mouth to Bezos's ears, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, he, he watching, he know what's up. They when we, <laughs> when we posted the the horse thing and we said we had a whole thing, Amazon don't got nothing on us because everybody kept saying, "Oh, how you gonna compete with Amazon? How you gonna compete with Amazon?" I was like, I, you know, we would never seek to compete with Amazon because Amazon has nothing on us. They could never compete with us, you know. Like I'm talking about something that's a part of my lineage, it's something of a community that I love. I'm not talking about like some bottom line thing, you know. So. It's very different. Um, it's a different perspective. And then, like, so people were sharing it and saying it. And then the folks from Amazon commented on the, <laughs> the post, touche. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but at least, it, at the very least, it means that you, you, you hear, you know, you hear me, you see me. Wow. I loved that line of stories are medicine. Agreed. I definitely connected with that idea. I'm curious for your thoughts on the value of literature as protest. I feel like it's challenging when a public education system doesn't really encourage literature like as a means of self related to the collective or a process of developing how to become more conscious of the society we live in. I believe literature can be used as protest. You know, a lot of people write from a space where they're offering more insight than what previous generations had, but getting people to see the value of that is like an entirely different story. Not everyone likes mm. to read, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think you're alluding a little bit to the banned books, uh, which have of course been all over the news in recent years. Uh, it's really interesting to me is how bookstores and especially independent bookstores can really play as a counterweight to those people. Uh, you know, a lot of them will put out tables and lists of, banned books that explicitly are not allowed in local school districts as a way to highlight those authors and make it really easy for readers to find them. Yeah, I think it's really noteworthy. And Stephen King actually did a tweet on this about banned books, like to not get mad, but get even and go read the books that uh, are banned. I touched on banned books a little with our guest, Dr. DeWitt Williams. So why don't we head into that? He is a Philly native, longtime educator, researcher, and author of the novels She Fulfilled the Impossible and Energized, amongst eight other novels. He has a doctorate in education from Indiana University. Dr. Dewitt has served as a pastor educating the youth for over 40 years and has done missionary work in a hundred other countries and is now speaking with us today. Dr. Dewitt, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here. Thank you. We're here to talk about your book, Breaking Barriers, The First Ladies of Education. This book details the history and the lives of the first three Black women to receive their PhD from an all-white institution. Now, there's a lot of pieces of American history that contains Black figures that gets lost. So I'm really curious to hear how you came across this and decided to write a book about these women. Well, it's an interesting question. I went to Oakwood College in Huntsville, Alabama in 1957. My professor, my English professor was Dr. Eva B. Dykes. The uh, English has always been my favorite topic. You know, I, high school, I, English, I still remember Mrs. Miss Lang in high school. And I was an editor of the yearbook and so forth. So I was real happy to have Dr. Dykes. And as I got to know her, you know, I found out that she, had taught in Howard University, and she was a, a child prodigy piano player and so forth. So um, I was I was uh, her reader. I uh, worked for her. I corrected papers and so forth for her. And uh, all during my five years at, at uh, Oakwood College, it, then it was Oakwood College, now it's Oakwood University. When I graduated, I well, I should say first that while I was there, I found out who she was, Dr. Dykes was, and she, everybody said there are three people who graduated uh, in 1921. They're the first three black ladies. 
So I wrote a book when we came when I came back from Africa. I wrote a book about Dr. Dykes. It's called "She Fulfilled the Impossible Dream." It's a it's a true. You mentioned novel, but it's it's a true story. I interviewed her and and um, interviewed other people who knew her. This was in 1985. It was published in 1985. So, um, 30 years later, I said, "Let me find out who these other." two ladies are. And uh, so I, I started uh, researching them. Dr. Um, Georgiana Simpson, it was very difficult to find information on her because she died early. She, I think she died in um, probably in 19, she died in 1944. She had an accident uh, uh, back then, you know, they had these little stoves where you you. Uh, uh, coal stoves and she got carbon monoxide poisoning while she was she went to sleep in front of her stove so she died in 1944 and uh, the other lady dr sadie moselle she is very well known in philadelphia and it's an interesting thing to me as i started how many people in philadelphia know her her name is just about disappeared yet she comes from philadelphia did you say you come from Philadelphia? Uh, no, I'm actually from New Jersey, but Philly is close to my heart. <laughs> yeah. Had, had you ever heard of her before? Um, no. I had never. No. Yet she was a very, very important lady. And her husband, she's the only one of the three ladies that uh, got married. Her husband was a judge and very prominent in Philadelphia, yet they had just about disappeared. So that's how I got uh, acquainted with them through my um, acquaintance with uh, Dr. Eva B. Dykes, and then finding out that there were two other ladies and uh, doing the research on them. Well, that's actually incredible to know and realize that you were a student of Dr. Eva Dykes. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about her presence and your experience um, being your pupil? Right, about Dr. Dykes. Yes, well, Dr. Dykes was, now all three of these ladies were five foot two. That was uh, interesting. They, I call them little giants. <laughs> they, um, I have their passports, and I knew, as I say, I knew Dr. Dykes personally. And all of them struggled to get this this degree, a PhD, and they all got it within about nine days of each other. And um, Dr. Dykes was born in Washington D.C., as was uh, Georgiana Simpson. She was born in Washington D.C. And even though um, Sadie Alexander was born in Philadelphia, she was educated in Washington, D.C. Her uh, Georgiana Simpson's, uh, not Georgiana Simpson, but uh, Sadie Alexander's mother was divorced. And she struggled raising three children. But her uh, uncle and aunt lived at Howard University. So she sent Sadie to live with her uncle and aunt. So they 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 lived. She, Sadie lived in Philadelphia and went to school in Washington D.C. up until she graduated from high school, M Street High School. So all three of the ladies went to M Street High School in Washington D.C. And uh, now getting back to Dr. Eva B. Dykes, her father left her also. Sadie's father left her, and Eva B. Dyke's father left her and left the mother to raise the children. So they, they the ladies uh, struggled to uh, take care of their families and had, had uh, family difficulties. Now, Georgiana Simpson, her parents were slaves. Now, that, that was the thing that uh, I found astonishing about uh, Georgiana Simpson is that her parents were slaves. Now, Sadie Alexander, her family was well-educated. They were freed people in Philadelphia. On her mother's side, she was a fifth generation. So her, her, her grandfather was a bishop. Her father was a, a lawyer. So she had, uh, she had lots and lots of incentives. She was, she was uh, well-acquainted with books and, and uh, important black figures came to her home in Philadelphia. But like I say, Georgiana Simpson's parents were slaves. They, neither one of them could read or write. 
with Eva B. Dykes, her uh, father left her, but her uh, uncle, Dr. Uh, Howard, stepped in and helped to raise her. So he had finances. He was a medical doctor and he helped to raise her. But you could see that the family background of these young ladies was such that it was actually difficult. And then you throw in the Jim Crow laws, Georgiana Simpson, for example. And, and the reason I admire her so much is that she was older. By the time she graduated uh, to, to get her degree, she was 56 years old. Whereas Sadie, she was 23 and Eva B. Dykes was 27. But to look at Georgiana Simpson, who was 56 years old, whose parents were slaves, and she just persevered and persevered. With Georgiana Simpson, she had to first go to summer school. She did most of her pre-work pre at summer schools, and she did correspondence work, and finally, she was able to go to University of Chicago. Now, she registered for the University of Chicago by mail. You know, she, uh, she didn't go in person, she registered by mail. When she came to the college, came to the dormitory, they, they threw her out of the dormitory. They didn't know that she was black. They didn't ask that on the, uh, on the questionnaire. And when she came in to the, to the girls' dormitory, Green Hall, that was the first time that the dean saw that she was black. And so uh, those girls there, they said the she was at University of Chicago. The girl said, we're not going to go to school with a black girl. So they kicked her out of the uh, dormitory. So uh, that, I thought, was uh, quite a struggle for her. So uh, to know that she couldn't live in the dorm with all the other girls to do be on campus with the other girls. So she was kicked out. With Sadie, she, she actually lived in Philadelphia also. She was, she was just 17 years old when she went to the University of Pennsylvania. And so she lived at home. She'd, she'd take her trolley car, uh, a trolley car to, to the school from her house. She said nobody talked to her. When she went to, uh, she got on campus. She finally, uh, she was young. And of course, she said uh, the first day of school, not one single person talked to her. She didn't know exactly where to go. She asked a couple of these white girls that were there, um, which way do I go? Just, she, she, she had the name of her first class, the professor, and nobody talked to her. They just passed her by. She talked to them and they just ignored her. So finally, right. she got to class and she said, I looked in the class and there were two or three of the girls that I asked how to get to class. They were sitting there and I came in late because they didn't talk to me. So that was, that was Sadie's experience. With uh, Eva B. Dykes, she couldn't live on, on campus either. She stayed in a boarding house. And uh, when she was doing her research, she, um, she couldn't go to any of the universities to work in the libraries. They wouldn't allow her, allow her to do that. And uh, finally, she uh, worked at the, university, uh, the, at the Library of Congress. She was able to go to the li Library of Congress to work on her dissertation. She had a big dissertation, 644 pages. So she did a, a, a really good job. But you can see some of the uh, problems that they had, uh, social problems with Sadie Alexander. After the, after the first semester, she was able to meet some very fine uh, students, black students who were going to school also working on, on their BAs. And so that was the first year, first semester for her, was difficult, extremely difficult. For Georgiana Simpson, it was difficult the whole time that she was there. So um, she was older. She studied German. She did hers in German, Georgiana Simpson. She okay. did hers in Ger German uh, philology. Mm. And uh, for a while, they were a lot of people. Uh, she, they went through the World War One, and of course, uh, that was because she was she was a proficient in speaking German. A lot of the people um, thought she was a, a rebel, and um, they didn't uh, didn't think too much of her. Many of our, even black uh, professors didn't think during that period 
all German was a uh, was kind of um, looked down upon. But she persevered and and finally finished. Now, yeah, um, that was long, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's what did you, what did you ask me? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the full story behind like what education was like during that time and. When you think of that time period, you know, like a time of segregation, it's it's obvious that, you know, racism presented so many different challenges for uh, Black people and Black women and Black men to gain an education. It was, if anything, a primary, like, gateway to opportunity during that time. Education uh, was the way to climb the social ladder and gain opportunity. And I'm, I'm curious, knowing that and also being Dr. Eva Dykes, being her pupil, do you still feel like higher education is key? Oh, yes, I, I really do. I really do. As I say, I have a doctorate of education from Indiana University. Uh, my wife was a, a teacher. She um, she didn't have a doctorate of education, but she had two master's degrees. My daughter is a medical doctor and one is a teacher. She has her master's degree. But, um, yeah, education today is is the uh, is the latter up i think uh, although they're telling us that uh, it's not as important as it used to be uh, my grandson as a matter of fact uh, he's uh, getting his engineering degree and doesn't want to go to beyond that he's, he's working on a master's degree but he says i don't want to go any further than that yes i, I do believe that uh, college and master's degrees doctor's degrees we we come into contact with uh, uh, other people who are studying elite uh, a little slice of of uh, they say when you study your doctor's degree that you're studying probably uh, especially when you write your dissertation they say on that particular subject you know more than anybody else in the world on that little slice of knowledge that you're studying and um we have people who come from all over the world coming to, especially to our educational opportunities here in the United States of America, because uh, we expose ourselves to the latest techniques, the latest theories. And um, yes, I think education is still necessary and the way to expand our horizons. I wanted to switch gears from like the past to the present. There's a lot of books that are banned Right. Uh, across like states and in school curriculums, there's school curriculums now that doesn't want to address race and race issues or include black voices. I'm curious of how you think of like integrating more black voices into education or uh, how do you go about doing that? Well, one of the things I do like about uh, the possibilities today is is the fact that we have podcasts and um I, I have a friend who's, who's a, he's a history professor, and he sends me some of the best at YouTube's Gauche, uh, doctor. He was the first black man to get a PhD. I think it was eight, around 1876, and, and uh, W.B. Du Bois a little bit after that. And then Carter Woodson, who came, those are the first three black men. Well, their voices are still speaking to us through YouTube. And... Yeah. Podcast, so you know you you can try to ban books, but the books will still speak. And um, the Florida governor, what is his name in in Florida? He's trying to ban the books, but uh, you can't you can't ban the books. The books are going to be seen. The young people are going to see the books. Yes, Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis. Yes. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think that's that's terrible to 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 ban books and. I think that um, that white people are blessed when uh, when they hear the perspective that the that the black educators bring. It's not just education for for black people. Every time I read something that um, Maya Angelou or somebody like that, um, if if you if you're going to ban something like that, you you're just you're hurting yourself. You're hurting your people. If you're going to ban Tony Morrison, I think we were all blessed with hidden figures. I, I have that sitting over here, hidden hidden figures. You know, why why would you take that away from from people? 
I, I was in the uh, bookstore just uh, yesterday, uh, getting getting ready for a book signing over there. I saw a book by from Michelle Obama. I haven't read it. Ben Carson. I saw a book. Piccolo is black. Uh, Oprah's book club. You know, there. Why would you take away the writings of our distinguished black people who have who have made a great contribution to society? So I'm I'm looking forward to reading uh, Michelle Obama's memoir. I'm I'm looking forward to reading that. I feel like um like I love what you said earlier. There's like no way to really stop the voices of the books. The books still speak. And I kind of heard you say earlier, like, you know, through technology, we can really integrate and keep spreading that knowledge around so that it's not suppressed. And I agree with you. I feel like, you know, it does a disservice to, you know, not just um, young Black folks, but white folks as well. And <laughs> us as a collective and as a whole, it does a disservice to all of us. Curious about your opinion. Do you feel like self-publishing is the only way to get Black voices centered? Um, did you decided to publish a book baby specifically because you can put it out yourself? The books that I used to get published, this is about my ninth book. And uh, I used to have a publishing house that published them, but it went out of business. Many publishing houses have shut down, especially when you get into things like history. I write history. I do research and I have, uh, you know, I, I'm not writing a, a novel. I have footnotes in the back uh, hundred and so footnotes, I interview people and so forth. Well, people don't want to read a lot of that today. They want something that's a, a fic fictional history. I think that's what one man told me. He said, I write fictional history. Well, what is that? Fictional <laughs> <laughs> I write history. I do research and I find out what happened and I try to make it so that uh, people will, un will enjoy reading it. I don't want it to be fact after fact, but I want it to make it enjoyable. So books, um, are not as um, valued, I don't think, today. Uh, paperback books that you hold in your hands, they're not as valued. You can get a you can get an e-book, you can get a Kindle book, you can get all kinds of books. So um, when I got ready to publish, my my company had had closed up. I didn't have any anybody, and then I uh, I didn't know what to do then. So uh, a place, an independent book place like book babies i kind of had another author friend and he said well i just got my book published over at book baby so i i didn't know what he was saying at first uh, book baby or baby books <laughs> so when i finally understood what he was saying i you know i did a little research and i liked it i would do if i had to do it again i would i would go back to to book baby these independent publishers um I understand uh, SEO. I didn't know what that meant before. Search engine optimization. Is that what it is? Yeah, that's part of our like uh, metadata. Uh, metadata. I had yeah. no idea. So <laughs> I, in that sense, it's it's a it's a it's a good opportunity. Absolutely. To understand how to go to Amazon and get their books before the people. You know, before it was in the hands of somebody else. So, and a lot of a lot of us who are who don't have a lot of money, I'm on a fixed income. You know, we have an opportunity to 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 get a book before people, and we don't have to have to pay you know thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for it. I feel like education is so key. I'm a book lover myself. I also went to college for English and writing. So when I saw this book, Breaking Barriers, talking about the education of Black women, I was like definitely need to know the person behind who decided to pen that kind of history and put it on paper. And I'm curious to know, other than education, like what other kind of values and morals did you see in these three Black women as you were writing them? Well, you know, um, one of the things that I mentioned is first, we, do, we don't know that things can be done sometimes until somebody does it. One of the things I liked about uh, Hidden Figures, you know, Many uh, very brilliant ladies with with math and so for algebra, uh, they didn't know exactly what they could do with that knowledge that God had given to them. Same thing with uh, with these ladies who got education, who got the um, got these first degrees. I have uh, someplace in my book here. The next ladies, they got these three ladies got their uh, degrees in 1921. All three of them, 1921, as I mentioned, within about nine days of each other. 
There were maybe Julia, Anna Julia Cooper. She got hers about five years later. And the next one about two more years later. And then the next one, uh, another two more years later. So one of the things that they did is that they were trailblazers. They were pioneers. First, in my mind, are difficult. The first quarterback, first black quarterback, you know, the first black man to go into space. It opens the doors for all of us to come and follow behind them. So this is this, I think, is what I give to Eva Dykes and Georgiana Simpson and C.D. Alexander. I take my hat off to them for letting us know uh, that that black women now black men struggle to get PhDs also, and they got them maybe 50 years before these ladies. But black women, they were two minority groups. They were women <laughs> and they were black. So they really mm -hmm. had to struggle to open up the way. So they cracked that glass ceiling of higher education, no matter what barriers stood in their way. And then they told us that others could follow along and, and do the same thing that they did. That's what I think uh, is important about uh, the three of them is that they they showed us that we can actually all black women, if they have a dream, as I said, with with uh, Georgiana Simpson, she didn't have parents who could read That's she right. didn't have books around the house. Mm -hmm. She got kicked out of the dormitory. She didn't have a lot of money. She was the first person in her family, but she had a dream. She had a, an idea that and 56 years old. Wow. <laughs> the other two young ladies, they were they were young when they they graduated. I told you their age before um, they were young, 23 years old and 27 years old. But she kept on going. All she had was a dream. No, um, it's really incredible to know that with all of those obstacles, poverty or even parents that didn't have that education to like make those kinds of milestones. It takes a certain spirit of perseverance to even get to those spaces. And I really like honor the way that you talked about that. That was like a trailblazing value that you see within yourself and these women. I have another book that's uh, at the printers right now. Um, this, this book, I actually was trying to get it out by June, 1921, but I got COVID. And that really slowed me down. I got I uh, got COVID, and I was actually very sick for for about six or seven months, and um, I still am a little little sick. I had to have iron infusions. I, I uh, had about eleven iron infusions, but uh, I'm getting uh, getting back to almost normal. But um, I was hoping that I would have this out in June of 1921, because that's when they graduated. All three of them graduated in June of 1921. So it came out in September of 1921, and I was just too sick to promote it. <laughs> so I was sick uh, for um, maybe seven or eight months, and now I'm just getting ready to promote it. But I have another book. She, uh, This one is called um, Dr. Ruth, go where the people hurt. Go where the people hurt. Dr. Ruth Temple was the first black woman to in California to get her PH, to get her MD, medical doctor. She's a medical doctor. Now there's a lot of um, confusion about uh, medical degrees. You'll hear some people say, well, I know of a lady who got a medical degree, but uh, 150 years ago, you could go to a, a medical school for maybe six months and they'd give you a medical degree. It wasn't a standardized degree. They, uh, around 1910, I think it was, they started uh, organizing these medical schools so that you had to have a certain curriculum. You had to, and so after 1910, the, uh, the medical schools had, had the requirements, specific requirements that you had to have. And uh, Dr. Ruth Temple was the first black lady uh, to go to a, um, a, a medical school that met the requirements 
of the after 1910. So she was the first black lady to be in 19, and, and that one's about to be to be about to come off the press. And always interesting to hear from our elders. I was really intrigued by his comment that white students in particular are blessed by reading black writers as well. Definitely true and gets at the purpose of reading books, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it highlights how education on black history is truly American history, and that should be read by everyone. He mentions bookstores carrying his book, and I'm curious how that happens exactly. Yeah, sure. I talked to Janine a little bit about this too. So let's use her shop as an example. You know, hypothetically, Dr. Williams goes into that shop, talks to the staff, promotes his interesting title. Uh, I think having specific interest in that bookstore is important. So for instance, Dr. Williams with a book about a couple of impressive Black women from history fits right in uh, with what Janine Cook is trying to do. So if they order the book or they decide that they want to order the book, they'll order that from a wholesaler like Ingram. And as part of our print distribution, your metadata is listed with Ingram as a book that they have available for sale. At a wholesale discount, I assume? Yes, absolutely. It's typically 45 to 55% off the retail price, uh, but ultimately dependent on the store's relationship with the wholesaler. You'll still get the same royalties for a sale as, say, on Amazon. Uh, and Ingram can also stock our books in their warehouse. But if they don't have them on hand, they'd pass that order along to us and we'd get printing. And unlike previous POD models from other companies... Our titles are fully returnable, and this is a major thing for bookstores, as it means there's very little risk for them in ordering copies of the book. They can just send the ones they don't want right back to us. You know, that sounds like a lot similar to like what traditional publishing does. So what's the difference, really? Can you explain? Well, the main thing is that we're not printing the books until they order. But from a bookstore's perspective, there really is no functional difference between ordering a book baby title and ordering a James Patterson novel. And most importantly, that is not the case for print books going through Amazon's KDP platform. Book Baby once again setting the standard for self-publishing. And on that note, let's wrap things up. If you're interested in learning more about Janine Cook, check out OurSistersBookshops.com. And if you're local, check out Harriet's and Ida's. For more info on Dr. DeWitt Williams, check out his website, drdewittwilliams.com. And to publish with BookBaby, email us at info at bookbaby.com or give us a call at 877-961-6878. Be sure to like, subscribe, and rate the Book Baby Spotlight podcast for us. And until next time, so long, everybody. 